you have your Bibles this morning, open with me, if you would, to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. I want to read in the Beatitudes to the second to last Beatitude we're going to focus on in this series about peacemaking. So Matthew 5, verse 9, these are the words of Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Let's pray this morning. Father, we sung just a moment ago about becoming instruments of your peace. My prayer this morning, God, is that you would allow us to be those kind of people in a world full of conflict. That where there's chaos, that we would be people who would be people of good news, not just through our words, but through our behavior. That we are, uh, we are molded into the kind of people where conflict is what we thrive on, where we derive our energy so often. But that's not what it means to be a part of the kingdom. We're to be people who... who sow seeds of grace and mercy and peace. And so, God, would you open our eyes to see ways we can do that in our lives this week. May this not just be another Bible lesson uh, where we just know more, God, but maybe it'd be a place for us to learn to do uh, more of what your Word says. Uh, It's in the name of Jesus that we pray this morning. Amen. Well, there's a prevailing wisdom in our culture about peace and how that is carried out in our world Today, in fact, peace has fallen on hard times. I'm not sure that's a new phenomenon. That's probably been around since the beginning, at least Genesis 3 and following. All kinds of wars, famines, uh, breakups in family systems. And in our 24-hour news cycle, we, uh, we kind of learn to expect this almost every night, right? You turn on the news and you're going to find out some more bad news, some more conflict that has ensued. And the way we tend to uh, think about peace is as the absence of conflict, right? That if we could do anything we can, we want to live in a a family, we want to live in a home where there's an absence of conflict. And so uh, our question often when it comes to how we go about that is what's the best way to get rid of conflict so that we can move on in peace in our lives? What's the most effective way to do so? And often it doesn't matter uh, the means to our end. Our end is to rid ourselves of conflict. And so we deploy all kinds of means to get to that place. So how does common sense teach us to become peacemakers in the world in that sense? And uh, there's several ways that actually this word peacemaker shows up when it comes to the means we've employed in the past. One of those was how the West was won. In fact, there's a 45 caliber gun that Wyatt Earp owned that was known as the Peacemaker, right? That's one way we thought about peacemaking. The the B-36 was the biggest bomber that was ever put into service by by the U.S. Air Force. It was called the Peacemaker. And then there's this missile that was developed in the 1980s that was capable of delivering 10 independently targeted uh, nuclear warheads at once. And I'm thinking, man, 10, 2 is probably enough, right? And that was known as the peacekeeper. And what's curious to me is that each of these things that we uh, have used to create peace in some way are named after Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, who taught us what we read a moment ago. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. It's ironic to me that weapons of war have taken their name from the language that Jesus himself developed. And this is the prevailing wisdom about peace in our world, and, and that belief is nothing new. It's not profound. It's been around since the beginning of time, that if you want peace, it's going to come through difficulty or conflict or violence. 
And when Jesus spoke these words 2,000 years ago, it was just as odd for him to speak those words into that culture as it is to speak them this morning into ours. He was speaking into a culture that thought about peacemaking in a specific way. Jesus grew up in a time where there was a phrase that described peacemaking in the way of the Roman Empire that was in charge during that time. It was called the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana just means in Latin, the peace of Rome. And Pax Romana was a political slogan, a campaign slogan. It was their way of saying, through our reign, the the Roman way of life, through doing things our way, peace will come to the earth. And the idea was, if you would just bow your knee to Caesar, if you would just give in to our demands, I can assure you that with more and more power and more and more taxes and more and more allegiance to Rome, then we're assured that things will be more peaceful in our world. And the cross was a great visible example of this. The cross was a a visual symbol to people of people who were crucified, trying to say to those who were under Rome that if you just go along, it won't happen like this. But if you stand up against Rome, you're going to find out what Rome does to those who respond with treason to Caesar. One scholar says it this way, Uh, Almost all the Roman writers agreed that spreading peace meant subjecting other people to Roman dominion, an expression of the proud conviction that Rome had been been vested with the mission of imposing its laws and way of life on the rest of the world. Fortunately, we live in a time where there are no superpowers that do that kind of thing, right? Maybe not. We still employ these same means, don't we? Rome believed it was generously giving to the world what it wanted most. And it was willing to do it through this means of peace, through violence. And Rome provided a peace of sorts. It was relatively uh, clear who was in charge of things. And for a season before the years went on, there was somewhat of a time of peace. But I would suggest to you that just because there's an absence of conflict does not always mean there's a presence of peace. For example... There will probably come a day where I'm sitting on the couch on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon and I want to watch football. This has never happened, Holly. I know it sounds strange. And I'm wanting to watch football and and the kids aren't as interested in that and so they're, you know, trying to watch something else and I won't let them. And then they start wrestling and bothering each other. This, This is a preacher's home. This would never happen, right? And then I can just imagine just kind of raising my voice to them, right? saying, would you all please stop in the name of Jesus? Yeah. Again, just hypothetical, it could happen at some point. And it's conceivable in an instance like that that they could actually stop their fighting with one another. I've raised my voice, I've made clear my demands, won't you please be quiet? They even heard Jesus' name invoked. Now, when they get silent, I have what I want, right? Which is the silence to go on with watching my football game uninterrupted. I'm not so sure that my kids have really experienced the peace that I'm experiencing in that moment. Even though there's the absence of conflict in the house at that moment, I would suggest the house is not at true peace. Because true peace would involve me not raising my voice, not dominating any way, not coercing through my power and influence. It would be to get down on the floor with them and to help them sort through their conflict with one another. Not to enforce my way, not the Pax Colin, as I would call it, which is a good thing sometimes. Sometimes we need to pronounce that right. 
but it would be to engage on their level so that they have their issues worked out, not to engage so that I can have peace and calm. The Pax Romana was about Rome getting what it wanted in the same way that in that example it would be about me getting what I wanted, uninterrupted joy of watching a game. So what if peace is actually bigger than the Pax Romana? And what if that's what Jesus was actually speaking to, what he was trying to bless? This morning, I want to suggest to you that peace isn't merely the absence of conflict. The peace Jesus is talking about is actually much bigger than that. Now, the Greek concept of peace was this. It was about the absence of conflict. It fit right into Rome's narrative. But the Hebrew concept of peace is a word you've probably heard before. It's the idea of shalom. And shalom is not just about the absence of conflict. Shalom is about a presence. It's about presence of God's uh, goodness in the world. It's about wholeness. It's about balance and harmony. Shalom is the highest good of all creation. Shalom is what happened in Genesis 1 and 2 when the garden was as it should be before sin enters into the world. And shalom is what will one day happen when God returns to restore his world the way he wants it. We don't live in shalom, do we? But I want us to move and push toward this, that it's not just the absence of conflict. How do we move toward a more whole relationship with one another? How do we move toward the presence of reconciliation, of God himself moving into our lives? The Old Testament vision of peace, of shalom, is all about the well-being of God's people, all of God's people, from the richest to the poorest, to the lame, to those who were agile, from the brilliant to the slow of mind, shalom. It's about the justice of living in a world where things are right between all things, all creation, and God and us. And I like that kind of thought. I want to move into that kind of life. I want our house to look more like not the absence of conflict, but the presence. Because I know of married couples who, what they've learned to do is really do a cold war with one another. It's not they've learned to work through their conflict. They've learned to kind of have an absence of conflict because they've stopped trying to figure out how to talk about things. And it's easier to just kind of go into our separate sides of the house. It's easier to just decide. This will happen in a few weeks with you probably, right? You'll be over for lunch on Thanksgiving. And in the room, you'll know that even though there might be an absence of conflict when you walk in, you can guess by the end there's going to be some conflict. And your job for some of us is just, can we just get through the day without that fight with Uncle so-and-so, right? Or here's the election this year. We know that conversation is going to come up with Aunt, you know, Tammy. I, I, I don't know what it is in your family system, but the reality is most of us live with this veneer of an absence of conflict. But underneath, there's all these issues that eventually find their way up to the surface. And this happens in our families. If, if we're not careful, we, we, we can push for the absence of conflict, either through coercion, the example I gave earlier, or, or just to act like everything's okay. But the reality is, Enough time given, that's going to bubble up and there's going to be more than just a cold war. The cold war is going to explode into something much more. Cold war is not the shalom of God. It's not peace. It's not the presence of God's wholeness and fullness. It's a step above discord and conflict at all times. I'm not suggesting that's any better. But I just want to point out that sometimes we think we have peace when really what we have is just a silence covering up a whole lot of conflict. So how do we become peacemakers in a culture like ours? I'd like to start by suggesting there's a huge difference between words that we tend to blend together. There's a big difference between peacemakers and peacekeepers. Huge difference between those two things. Pay close attention to Jesus' words. He says, blessed are are the peacemakers, 
but they'll be called the children of God. He's not, he doesn't say to them, he doesn't say, blessed are those who love peace. He doesn't say, blessed are those who have peace. He doesn't say, blessed are those who wish for peace or for long for peace or pray for peace. Those are all good things. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. The word literally means doers of peace, makers of peace. This is an active term that Jesus is calling and blessing. And I want to define these ideas of peacemaking and peacekeeping in very different ways. Peacekeeping is this. Peacekeeping, a peacekeeper hides obvious conflict. That's the person who who walks into a situation and just tries to make sure that everything goes well. And that's a good thing. Sometimes, in fact, avoidance is one of the techniques of conflict resolution. There are some things it's better to avoid than it is to make a mountain out of a molehill. So there's some things in our lives that avoidance is okay. There's a lot of things in our lives, though, that we avoid that really isn't dealing with the root cause. So when there's an obvious conflict in the room, a peacekeeper is one who comes in and tries to, in some way, divert attention or try to to at least people... Let people coexist in the room. But let's be honest, tolerance, our culture's chief virtue, is not the highest virtue of human relationship. It goes so much deeper than that. It's not to tolerate one another. That's not a virtue almost at all. It's to move into love and to reconciliation with one another. And so a peacemaker is really the opposite of a peacekeeper. A peacemaker is someone who exposes and resolves hidden conflict. See the difference between those two things? Peacekeeper sees the conflict that's in the room and tries to make sure everything kind of goes along okay and nothing blows up. But a, a peacemaker's the one who, who's able to kind of expose, and, and not just expose, not just bring it up, but also be able to help reconcile and restore and resolve the hidden conflict that's there. Well, let me give you a couple cautions because for some of you that love this definition because you're like, oh, I can do that. <laughs> I can raise hidden conflicts. Not every fight is worth fighting. Jesus says, blessed are those who make peace, not those who create conflict. That's not the point. It's those who are able to raise it to the surface, but also help resolve the issues that are between these parties. I want you to hear this. You cannot be a peacemaker. You cannot have true peace without dealing with conflict. It's inevitable. It's a part of the journey towards a restored relationship. In fact, as counterintuitive as this may sound, a peacemaker is an expert in dealing with conflict. One of Jesus' hardest sayings in Scripture comes a little bit after the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 10, just a few chapters later. He says this in verse 34. I still have a hard time understanding this verse. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And I want to say to Jesus, well, which is it, Jesus? Blessed are the peacemakers, or, or you come not to provide peace, but a sword. It doesn't seem to go together. But I think Jesus is actually getting to the heart of peacemaking. To be a peacemaker is not to avoid conflict. The path to true peace is through it, not around it. It's through the conflict that's there. It's to actively engage the world to bring about wholeness and blessing and shalom. In fact, it means Sometimes we won't be able to keep the peace as much as we try to in those circumstances. The truth is, though, too, you, you cannot make peace by exchanging nuclear warheads to prove your dominance. That's not God's shalom that he brings. The bombs lobbed between Palestinians and Israelis, it hasn't created for more wholeness, has it? It hasn't created a moment for peace. Maybe the absence of conflict for a season because of dominance, but not the shalom of God. It's not what God blesses. I like the way Martin Luther King talked about this. 
that love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. By its very nature, hate destroys and tears down. By its very nature, love creates and builds up. As followers of Jesus who've been baptized, we take our marching orders from King Jesus. Jesus taught us an important lesson in peacemaking. And it's something that he didn't just teach us. He, He actually showed on his own body. The peace Jesus wants us to seek will mean bearing more scars than we are willing to inflict. Let me say that again. The peace that Jesus wants us to seek will mean bearing more scars than we're willing to inflict. For 2,000 years, the church has gotten up in a lot of creating scars with people. Actual physical scars in some circumstances when you think back to the past and forcing people to be baptized or come to the sword. But it happens in smaller ways that a lot of us bear the marks on our bodies. And these battles are more about inflicting pain to assure our agenda than it is about God's agenda into the world. But if you want to know the test for if you're pursuing peace, if you're a peacemaker or not, I would say it's this. If you are willing to bear more scars than you're willing to inflict, that's a good clue that the peace you're trying to make is God's kind of peace. And Jesus showed us this, didn't he? Jesus actually bears the scars on his resurrected body of what was done to him on our behalf. He he didn't come in and, and take over Rome through power and violence. That was the expectation. But Jesus comes in and he bears marks. He, he bears up under suffering and he bears those scars. If, if you have scars as a result, if you're a peacemaker, you're going to have scars. You're going to have stories to tell through the things that have occurred to you. They're going to be painful situations. But God removes and he, he restores Scars are signs that things have been healed, aren't they? They're not open wounds anymore that God allows us to tell these stories of what God's done in our life when we stood up for the unjust punishment of people, when we stood up and walked into conflict between parties and and helped them come together. And when we pick up our cross and follow Jesus, it means we will follow the example of Jesus. It means that we bear those scars as well. The story I'm about to tell is a story that I think is one of the most powerful stories of what peacemaking is. It's a story about a guy named St. Telemachus. Telemachus lived in the 4th and 5th centuries A.D. He was a monk that lived in in the east, uh, but he felt a call from God to leave his monastery and to walk into the western world, into Rome, to begin to share the good news of Jesus with the Romans. Again, this is centuries after Jesus has died. And he arrives in Rome and he gets caught up in a crowd that's on its way to some event. And so he follows this crowd and sure enough, he winds up at this monstrosity known as the Colosseum in Rome. He heard that there were gladiatorial fights and so he walks in with the rest of the crowd to see what the fuss is all about. And he walks in on this fight. He walks in on this gladiatorial contest. And when the fighting started, Telemachus couldn't stand what he saw. So he jumps actually from the stands onto the floor of the arena. And he yells out over and over again, In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom I serve, stop. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom I serve, stop. And the gladiators turned on Telemachus and murdered him in the arena that day. There was silence in the crowd. One by one, the spectators began to rise and file out of the Colosseum that day. History claims that the last gladiatorial game ever held in that Colosseum happened that day, January 1, 404 
A.D. The memory of Telemachus's screams and the crowd's bloodlust changed the hearts of the Romans. They saw themselves. They had a mirror held up to them through what happened to Telemachus to be reminded that this way of life is insane. It's, it's upside down and the right side up way of the kingdom is actually a better way. One historian said of Telemachus, Telemachus' death was more useful to humanity than his life. And if that isn't the story of the cross, I don't know what it is. And Telemachus is another chapter in a, a long story of Jesus' followers that reminds you that the best peacemaking will always end up with more scars on you than on them. Earlier in the service, we saw the story of Caleb and Jenny Beck. Caleb and Jenny are missionaries in Rwanda. And if you don't know much about Rwanda, you probably know about the genocide. But before the genocide in 94, Rwanda was known as the most Christian nation in all of Africa. Missionaries had done, and got, done some great work, and, and people were coming to faith in great numbers. They had these tribes, Hutu and, and Tutsi. And, 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 and while the, the gospel should overcome all of our tribes, not just Hutu and Tutsi, but all of our tribes that we divide up in, Unfortunately, those tribal loyalties won out over the gospel of Jesus. And over a short period of time, about 100 days, almost a million people lost their lives. One of those stories that we look back on and think, how could we have not done more to step in? Why did we not see this? But Caleb and Jenny Beck and others in the Africa Transformation Network are involved in ministering to orphans of that genocide. Some who don't have fathers and mothers because they were killed. Now imagine trying to reconcile a country that had been through this kind of warfare where, where children now have to look to their oppressors, to those who may have even killed their family members, and somehow be able to reconcile that, to, to live in partnership. That was the task of the gospel in Rwanda. And it continues to be the story that's being told. As followers of Jesus who have borne scars on their bodies are walking into life with those who created those scars. Just a moment, we're going to share a video. And if you have young kids, I just want to warn you, there are a couple scenes at the beginning that you may want to remove your kids for, um, a couple scenes from the actual genocide. Uh, but I think this story is really powerful as we hear the story of what actually happened and the restoration and reconciliation that God is, is working in His people. So let's go ahead and roll that story right now. after genocide it was quite a difficult for everyone to think if Rwanda was going to, to make it. There have been so many questions about why did God abandon us? What good were our churches? My dream for Rwanda is to see 
Rwandans transformed. ATN, we are here to be a tool or instrument God can use to transform communities which can easily reach out the whole country, which can redeem and restore Rwanda. That is ATN. So whatever we do here is about transformation. Rejo no sadirangiye byari bikomeye nahinjiye abantu he was very resistant to any new things no hope no trust sukuza renga karurukuntu yaje tugira kongera kugira ibyiringiro kugira ndavuga burya bya bintu burya wa mugabo burya afite icyo ashaka guhabana nibwo natangiye sasa kumva karore ndetse no kubishutiye cyane my hope was uh, when we invest in Jill, he can also invest in many. We work in education, we work in agriculture, we work in sports, ministering to uh, genocide survivors. We work with uh, girls who are leaving prostitution and uh, boys who are trying to leave the streets. Now Gilles leads a kingdom community. He sits down with those young street boys. They open the word of God and they read about the Jesus who loves them more than they could ever imagine. And they individually talk about how they're going to obey what they read and who they can share it with. That's the power of the gospel moving from one story to the next. That's the way disciple making movements happen. And if God can heal Jill, God can heal uh, anyone else. Yarumva ni imana yonyine ya yanyishije. Ni imana riri bayarakijije umuntu. Nta kindi kiri special nakoze kugira ngo Jesus said it years ago. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called children of God. Caleb and Jenny Beck are examples of peacemakers, along with so many others that work with them. This is part of what we're giving to in two weeks on Mission Sunday. We have a group that actually was there on the ground this last year that will get to share more stories. If I'd love for you to come next Sunday during our class time at 9.50 in our fellowship center. You, may, you who may be new to us, sometimes you may hear language about the 180s. That's really confusing language if you're new. That's our fellowship center, which is on the east side of our building where our classes usually are. We'll have that whole space open. It'll be a time for us to share stories about what God's doing there in, in Canada, in Belize, and other places. Let you know more about the mission trips you all can take. And so I want you to be aware of that next Sunday, to be here. Uh, there's actually another video that'll be shown of uh, dozens of baptisms that happened uh, just recently there in Rwanda. The power of the gospel, again, transforming lives. So I want to encourage you to be back, and we'll share more next week as well. Um, as I close today, I want to remind us of this, this is so backwards, isn't it? 
Because we're taught to fight for what we need. We're taught to protect ourselves. We're, we're taught to respond with power over others. But the power of the gospel is in the scars that we bear. Not in any scars that we would inflict. May we be reminded and be convinced again that this is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's a hard way. It's not a fun way. It's, it's difficult in many ways. But we will not make this commitment in the hard moments if we don't make it in these moments together to be committed to this way of Jesus. So to those of you who are peacemakers, who bear scars on your body, congratulations. You're the children of God. Close with prayer this morning. God, thank You so much for Jesus. Thank You for the scars that He bore on our behalf. I thank You that You didn't create a way in this world that would create more blood, that Jesus would be the final and last sacrifice that would be needed on behalf of those of us who are guilty of sin. God, I thank You for Charles Cabeza. I thank You for Caleb and Jenny. I thank You for others, God, that are in that ministry that are working and for our fellow Rwandans who are brothers and sisters with us. They show us the Gospel in a way that we don't quite understand. We're grateful for their example. We're in some way even grateful for their scars because they tell stories of the truth of this blessing of Jesus. God, convince us again that peacemaking is better than any other way. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.